Welcome to another episode of Complete Developer Podcast, the podcast by coders for coders about all aspects of creating your best life as a developer. I'm Will, the accomplished developer, author, and software architect. And I'm Beach, the journeyman developer sharing my journey in development. Complete Developer Podcast is supported by listeners like you. We are now on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash Complete Developer Podcast. Hook, line, and sinker. Webhooks allow you to offload processes to third-party software. Building them has its own challenges to overcome and its own set of best practices to make those challenges easier. In this episode, we dive into the best practices around building webhooks. We'll look at the way the users set up webhooks and then delve into some areas you need to pay special attention to when building them. But before we get started, Will, what's got you on the hook? I've been uh, kind of observing some some interesting things at work because we have uh, we're using ASP.NET Core and Entity Framework, right, to access the database. And the frequency with which we get burned by Link uh, seems like it's increasing a little bit. Basically, one of the big things that's happening is we create a link statement, and you know that's supposed to be convert it into SQL code and do its thing in the database, and then you get your stuff back. Well, Link tries to be smart, and if it doesn't understand the function that you're putting in there for part of that Link statement, it's like, okay, I'll just, I'll do the other parts, bring the record set back, and then apply this as a filter client side or server side, I guess. And so you you end up with things that, like, you make a subtle tweak to the query, and if you don't specifically know that something gets translated into SQL it may drastically increase the load or the amount of stuff coming across the wire. And it's just kind of, it's, it's strange to me. Like, you know, we're in the 21st century and we still haven't got a good way to really surface those kind of things where it's obvious. So I've been trying to think my way through, like how do I, you know, what, what can we do design pattern wise or policy wise or logging wise? Like how, how do we find these before the, you know, before they break in production? So that's what I've been thinking through this week. So how about you? Well, writing this episode was kind of fun. Will was being a total one and wouldn't leave me alone last night when I was trying to write it, pestering me. So I just gave in and let him join and help me write an ep- the episode. <laughs> it's been quite a while since we've written an episode together, uh, like several years. Yeah. And we are way faster now. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, that was that was really interesting. In uh, healthier news, I ran a full mile today. So the uh, the thirty minute workout section that I normally do on Tuesdays and Thursdays was closed for cleaning today. Quite frustrating. And so I've actually been running a mile uh, Monday, Wednesday, Fridays, but it's been like with intermittent walking. So I'll like run for a little bit, walk up the hills, run for a little bit, walk up the big hill, run for a little bit. You know. And overall, the running adds up to a mile. I think my wife does something like that during part of her training so that she yeah. can get more distance. Yeah, that's that's literally There's, what it is. It's a it's endurance building. Yeah. And that's that's what I've been doing. But today I was like, you know what? I'm going to run a mile. If I don't make it the whole mile or if I'm just like, I can't keep going after running this mile, I've run a mile, you know, and it's better than doing nothing because the area I normally work out in is closed and I only spend 30 minutes at the gym on Tuesdays and Thursdays uh, because of uh, meetings. So I said, hey, you know what? Going to knock it out. And uh, so I did. I I set it for uh, 30 minutes on the manual. I normally do like the hill climber, but I set it 30 minutes on the manual and just started off running. Ran full mile. And uh, then ended up walking the rest of the way. I got two miles in um, by the end of it. And I kind of like, I pushed the elevation up as I went that in the walking part. So it was kind of like similar to what I do normally. But instead of spreading out the mile, it was all at once. And I came, I got done. And I was like, wow, I'm not even winded, you know? That's good. Yeah. So uh, I'm going to start doing that on... Uh, Tuesdays and Thursdays, when I do the 30-minute workout section, I'm just going to run a mile beforehand 
just, you know, because I can and why not? That's, you know, more exercise. So, you know, it's more calories burned. In in other good news, uh, I've been getting a bit more involved on the creative team at church. I am uh, getting to be a photographer and do some B-roll videography for a couple of events at the church during cert, like during services. So uh, that means I'm not on the tech team those those days, which is kind of cool. I mean, I love being on the tech team, but it's kind of cool to get to do other things, you know? Yeah. Plus, I've been asked to go to some of the small groups and take some photos and videos, which that's that's really neat. And so I'm going to be getting to go see some of the groups that I don't normally go to uh, and how they do things. I probably won't stay the whole time, but just come in, do some video. There's one I'm looking forward to. It's a cheese-making group. Ah. Yeah, sort of a social thing, but so we have some people who have a bunch of goats. And so they're doing a thing on how to make different types of cheeses with goat milk. If you need to borrow a cheese press, I've got one. (laughs) I'm not uh, actually going to make it. I'm just going to go with my camera and uh, do some video and photography. So it's going to be a lot of fun. When is this? Uh, They do it the first, third, and fifth Saturdays of the month. So if you want to come with, let me know. That's a lot of cheese. (laughs) It's a lot of cheese. Yeah. So are you going to make the video cheesy or you got to? Oh, it's, it's definitely going to be a cheesy video. Saving money is hard, especially when you're already on the hook. Lucas Casades is a fee-only certified financial planner. He owns and runs Level Up Financial Planning virtually out of Fort Collins, Colorado. Yeah, and just like us here at Complete Developer Podcast, Lucas focuses on helping you to not only establish a real plan, but take action so that you can live your best life. Yeah, and the, the trick of it is is that when you invest in financial planning services, you want to get more out than you put in. And Lucas helps you do that. He helps you improve your finances. Um, there's, there's a compounding impact to making better decisions, and it will pay for itself over time. The really nice thing is that Level Up has a unique pricing model that's going to help you no matter where you are in your financial journey. So if you are just starting out or if you are a senior developer looking at, hey, I need to start planning for retirement. No matter where you are, he has a package for you to work with you uh, at that level. And Lucas is also a fiduciary for his clients, which means that he's not here to sell you a product, but to actually guide you to a better financial situation. So guys, you can catch his podcast, Techie Personal Finance Bootcamp, where he covers financial topics that you probably face and interviews other IT professionals who share how they navigated their careers. You can also learn more at levelupfinancialplanning.com. The term webhook is an extension of the term hook, you know, altering the behavior of a system first used by Jeff Lindsay in 2007. Webhooks are user-defined callbacks that allow for the alteration of data or behavior of a website through a third-party application. They're typically not built or maintained by the developers who are using them, so they have to be able to interact with a variety of systems. Webhooks are used for a lot of different functions. Most commonly, they are used in continuous integration systems to trigger builds and releases, as well as in tracking systems to, say, notify developers of bugs before they become a problem. A common website use is a payment processor in which, you know, the client doesn't have to worry about personally identifiable information or financial security. Uh, Those are all handled by the third party providing the webhook. When triggered, the client will send an HTTP request to the webhook's URL where the service will act on the information and call back into the client system with a return object. Uh, So you have events like submitting an order request or accepting a pull request into the main branch, and these are kind of typical triggers for webhooks. The URL triggering events and sometimes the return objects are configurable when you set the webhook up. In this episode, we're going to discuss the best ways to set up a webhook service. We'll start by following the path the user takes when setting up and connecting to your webhook, then discuss the things that you need to have in the service from retry logic to error handling. And then in the aftercast, we're going to discuss tips for documenting your webhook as well as best practices for consuming 
webhooks. So let's get started. The first thing that you have to have uh, is a user interface for setting up the webhook. So for each disparate event that your system emits, in other words, each webhook type that gets dispatched out of your system, there needs to be the ability to let it call a different webhook or a different endpoint on the client system because they may want to actually call into completely disparate systems on their side, right? They may have a microservice architecture, for instance. Mm-hmm. Users need to be able to configure different environments, dev, test, UAT, production, and be able to configure them individually. Developers don't need access to production, nor should you as a developer want access to production. You don't want it. Trust me. Yeah. Just just trust me on this. You want the ability to dodge. Anything out of any episode we, we do, it needs to be goal setting and you don't want to be in production. Yeah. <laughs> now, your your user interface also needs to handle some other things. Uh, one of those things is the authentication mechanism, such as a key pair uh, for the request, basically to prove that you are who you say you are. And those need to be different between environments and configurable in the UI. And we can have a much more thorough discussion of authentication and all that fun in another episode because it's like it's at least one more episode worth of content. At least at the very minimum. Yeah. Also, the user interface needs to automatically test the webhook to check that it's actually working once it is set up. So like when you get it set up, there needs to be just an automatic test. Yeah. And one of the reasons you do this is because developers forget you know, they forget to set the site up and they go, oh, your webhook isn't working. It's like, oh, well, is that, can can we actually get there from here? Or does it give a gateway timeout? The other thing it does is it actually lets your UI verify that, yes, I can get to it while the developer's looking at it. Um, so it keeps them from having to come back in a month after they've forgotten about your service and go, oh, I never did hook that up right. Because not that that's ever happened to me. Oh, well, never hooks anything up incorrectly. Ever. Says the voice. I haven't let the magic smoke out of any machines. <laughs> what are you talking about? Today? <laughs> hey, the magic smoke makes the computer work. And when you let it out of the processor, the computer won't work anymore until you put the magic smoke back in. Good luck doing that. Uh, all right. The, the next thing we're going to talk about here is a testing mechanism for developers. That's the next thing I guess you need is a testing mechanism for developers. Uh, They need to be able to shape the data and send it through the process for each webhook that is available. Like they, they need to be able to get in there and completely test it. Not just your automatic, Hey, it's working, but test different ways. And what happens if this is missing? And you know, what happens if our system doesn't do this right? They need to be able to get in there and do that. Yeah. And it's, strange how many of them don't let you do that they're like oh just configure the webhook and then we'll call you it's like okay but when you call me if i can't control when that call happens it makes debugging really hard right like a lot of times i I need you to call into the dev system and here's the payload go do something with it and i'm going to be doing that tons of times during the day you also have to include the ability to test error conditions because that's one of the main things developers have to worry about Right. So you're sending a payload back that goes, hey, we didn't find this account. The developer's got to be able to deal with it. Potentially, you know, that's something when their system breaks and they find that, okay, we haven't been handling this right. They need to be able to go into your system and start firing those off into dev fairly quickly so that they can adjust because production may be in trouble right now. In addition to that, uh, developers also need to be able to see how their system responded and in what kind of time period it did so. So they need to to know like what you're getting from their system. Right. So how quickly that happens. Yeah, because they may go, oh, well, it looks like this when I'm sending it out, but they may not be aware of things like middleware that's gzipping the payload. And you're, for some reason, your system can't handle that. Uh, mm-hmm. That would be a perfectly good example. Or you know, any any other kind of security thing or or whatever, like they actually need to be able to see it on your side as your side 
get it, not as they think they're sending it out, because those are two very different things. You also need to think about things like special characters and text fields, things like dates. Dates are actually a good example. They need a pretty rich uh, input mechanism so the developers can see how the system will handle it based on what they send by way of JSON. So you don't go, okay, I'm sending you a date that says, you know, 2-2-12. Okay, what what is that as a time format? Is that February 2nd, 2012? Is it, well, okay, that's not a good example. 2-3-12. <laughs> see, <laughs> I confuse myself even with the example. Okay, is that, is that February 3rd, 2012? Is it March 2nd, 2012? Is it some other weird you know, thing that some, you know, VAX system from the 80s uses that, you know, is archaic and they expect something different. Like, they need to be able to pick it with a date picker and say, here's the date I actually meant. What does it look like when you send it? Also, constraints that are on the outgoing payloads need to also apply to the testing and incoming payloads so that, you know, you're not sending stuff in that, can't go through or if you have a character limit you're not just passing in a string and you have a character limit of two characters because it's a state and you're only holding you know tn and someone passes in you know tennessee or east tennessee (laughs) right or confusion it's another state it's not a good one (laughs) Uh, yeah, I mean, but you do want to actually treat this like it's a first-class citizen of your system because it is. It's a user interface. It's just a different class of users. Mm-hmm. So the the next thing is to understand the return object shape. You want to be specific about what is expected in the return, especially with HTTP status codes, so that consumers know what to expect when using the webhook. Yeah, don't surprise people with your software. Like, I mean, I've seen systems that everything is a post and it's like, okay, you're asking for data from my system. That should be a get, you know, like don't, don't do like weird semantics and stuff because it makes it harder for me when I'm debugging it or some developer goes, Hey, this should be a get request because it's asking for information and they change the, you know, they change the attribute and all of a sudden now it doesn't route there anymore. Like that's something that gets out to production real easy. So don't just don't put yourself in a position to do that. Now, also. The return payload needs to be in the HTTP body, not in the headers or in other weird places like where Will gets his ideas. I promise you that is not in the head. <laughs> Make sure uh, this is highlighted in the testing interface if it's incorrect. So like you want to let them know if like where they're sending stuff, like where it's located is not correct. Don't just absorb it. Yeah, and don't just go error. Yeah. You know, something yeah. broke. Do a little bomb icon like Apple used to do like way back in the day. <laughs> remember that? Yeah. Yeah. I remember that. You should also provide examples or sample return objects so that consumers can build for what they'll receive before they begin consuming. I've seen quite a few systems where they're like, okay, we'll call your webhook and you know, we'll send you the payload. And it's like, okay, but now I have to rig something to catch that. Mm-hmm. So that I can tell what it looks like. And oh, by the way, if something changes in the structure. I have to catch that. And and so you end up in like this little like format prodding situation where you're trying to figure out what it actually is. Like give them a schema, you know, either JSON schema or heck, you could do it in XML, but like give them a sample so that they can do this quickly and they can actually provide business value instead of trying to reverse engineer your format that you're sending. Also, make sure that the return error codes are understandable and easy to find in the documentation. We're going to be talking a lot more about documentation in the aftercast, so you can check that out on Patreon at patreon.com slash complete dev pod. You should also allow developers to manually validate their return payload by copying it in because they may not be able to actually let you call their development machine. Right, So they may be able to generate a payload back, but they need to validate it manually through your website because they can't actually send it to you because they can't trigger a webhook. And, and be aware of that. Don't, don't do this thing of, oh, we insist that you open up a firewall port because that adds so much work to things. It's just not, it's not absolutely necessary. Well, no, and if you have competitors who aren't doing that, 
uh, I can guarantee you people are going to go to them. Well, the developers definitely will advocate for it, right? Another thing you should be doing, uh, you should be following guidelines as if your client, that, that is the, the place you're calling with the webhook, implemented you know, some kind of protocol, probably REST. Um, and what this means is you, you know, like we said before, you got to use the correct HTTP verbs uh, for the action that you're trying to take. Um, now, with webhooks, most of the time, you're probably updating a system or an object that is owned by your client. You know, that's the idea. They originated something, they sent something into your system, something happened there, and it pushes it back. Um, so generally, it's going to be a put. Maybe sometimes it'll be a post. Uh, there's fewer use cases for things like gets and deletes and and those kind of things, but they're not non-existent. Make sure to follow the other rules of REST as well, such as authentication protocols and query string parameters. Speaking of query string parameters, you're going to need to have an agreed upon set of these parameters for your gets. And for the other HTTP verbs, they will be basically placeholders for the path. Right. So that's one thing that a lot of people writing uh, webhook setups don't think about is hey, if I'm passing data back in to them through like a patch route, it, it's probably in the middle of the URL. And, and that's why a lot of them kind of go to, to just doing posts, but you're actually forcing your client's architecture to be less clean if you, if you do that. Like, you know, actually do it right and put a placeholder. Now, another thing in this that you should be aware of uh, is that you should write your webhook uh, dispatcher in such a way that you avoid overloading the consumer server. So you basically need to have some kind of rate limiting on your outbound calls. You know, this isn't rest so much as it is just letting their server have a rest, <laughs> you know, because you would expect somebody that's calling you to or that you're calling to rate limit your requests so that, you know, you don't overload them. And you kind of need to do that outbound as well. I've seen systems, for instance, where there's like a nightly batch that runs. And it processes thousands of records and like pushes out all these webhook calls. And if you get one of those pointed at your server and it doesn't rate limit, it'll take your server down. So you do want to be aware of that. That's not exactly, you know, it's not exactly a um, REST protocol thing. It's more of just a, hey, this is sort of common sense. And this was the best place to put that discussion. Yeah, that makes sense. So now that we've had uh, that discussion that Will just needed to have with everyone, you're going to want to also log the request process. Your client needs to be able to see what the results of the webhook are on your end, uh, including any errors. So like, they're not going to know what's going on on your side of things. So you need to be able to provide them adequate logs so that if what's going on on your end, if it's not receiving right, or if it's having some type of issue like connecting to your system, then they can know and be able to make adjustments. Yeah. And this is different, by the way, than doing it in the dev interface. The dev interface is built to kind of tell them when they're shaping things wrong or sending stuff back wrong. This is more like, hey, one request out of 5,000 messed up. Let's track that one down. So it's it's a slightly different uh, concern, I guess. Uh, it should also uh, be pretty vivid as far as displaying the problems with the payload coming back, because um, the dev is probably going to be the one on the hook for fixing this. It's just a, it's a production errors thing versus a dev errors thing, I guess is the best way to put that. Now, the validation system in development needs to also be the same that you use in production. This way, development will be able to address issues that may come up in the production environment. Like, you don't want to have two separate validation systems. Right. Or uh, I'll give a great example of this. I've seen developer systems where you can pass a date in and the date can be any, you know, anything within the range of what date supports. But in production, it only supports dates after today, right? So there's a completely different validation scheme. And what will happen is, is somebody will push to production and then their stuff breaks and you gave them no warning. And it just makes you look bad. So you definitely want to avoid those kind of problems. You also need to provide at least some basic statistics for usage and any problems that may arise uh, using your system or calling back into their system. 
Uh, the idea here is to allow the consumer to troubleshoot sets of problems without having to crawl through logs of individual errors. I mean, sometimes you'll see a client where they think that they did 100 requests you know, yesterday and they actually did 50,000 because something's running in a loop and then terminating. Like that needs to kind of be visible to them and, you know, maybe even breaking down the parameters as those come in. So they can say, hey, it's just this one that is getting stuck. Let's go look at it. Now, next, you need a separate testing environment while your validation system needs to be the same between uh, environments. Your authentication uh, should be separate between production, development, and test UAT. What this is going to do is it's going to prevent data leakage between environments, especially between dev and production. Right. And especially in the direction of production data making it into dev when it's, you know, health information or, you know, uh, personally identifiable information, those kind of things. Mm -hmm. uh, you want to be careful about that. Plus, you don't want developer credentials working on production because developers may get it pointed at the wrong server. And that could be very expensive. Yeah. Now, this also means that endpoints for webhooks are going to vary across environments or they can. And, you know, your host names are probably going to be the part that varies in normal cases, uh, whereas the rest of the path should stay the same between environments most of the time. Yeah. Now, what you you really want to do, though, is give your consumer the ability to change their paths and the structure of the URLs in development without changing them in other environments. Because what's going to happen is they're going to make changes. They may come out with a new version things like that, and that's going to happen in development first. Uh, and if they're set up properly, it will go development to test, to UAT, to production, in that order. Right. I, I have seen it go, you know, development to production, to UAT, to test before. I've seen it go production to dev, to UAT, back to dev, and then to production. I've seen that too, places. but I wasn't going to yeah. say it. <laughs> yeah, we, we yeah. know the same guy. Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, but yeah, so the thing is you need to, you need to give them the ability to make those changes per environment because it's very easy to think, oh, well, the only difference between environments is going to be like the server. And so it's going to be the same code on all environments. So once they set the path, that's not going to change. Not the case because they may do updates, things like that. And you don't want them having to create a whole new webhook because they updated the path on like this one call. Yeah, and it gets even more fun if you have a team of developers because you probably don't want to change it for all of them at the same time either, just the dude that's working on that part right now. Yeah. And so it, it really gets complex in a hurry, uh, but you, you do have to do this. Uh, another thing to remember here is that developers can't always open a port on the firewall for you to call into, like we mentioned earlier. So you, you may want to represent dev-only payloads uh, in some other usable format. So you may want to do something like packaging those up so they can be used by Postman locally. So the developer can call the webhook on their side, you know, less authentication. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And, and go on from there. Another thing you need is a retry process for your webhook calls, and it needs to have, it needs to be item potent. So, and item potent method is one where calling it more than once doesn't change the state um, of the system. So for example, a method that sets a value equal to a certain number is item potent because every time you call that method, it sets the value to the same thing. It has the same effect. Whereas a method that increments that same value is not item potent because every time you call it, it adds one to that number and it changes the state of that number. Right. So you have to have a built-in retry process for calling the client because servers are not always available. You know, they, they may have something going on and you don't want to do this thing where you go, okay, well, we're going to give you this time period that's a maintenance window. We're not going to call you during that time period because that's not up to you, right? Like the, you know, it's just you're you're getting into the organizational politics. Like you need to let them break their servers and you recover, and it's not your problem. And so the retry process lets you lets you do that. Now you you don't want this process to be linear. Instead, it should be 
an incrementally increasing process. So uh, I was when I was writing up the part about the documentation, I was actually reading documentation from a couple of different uh, places. And one of them said uh, they had linear retry. They're like, you know, we uh, we just keep trying every minute. And I'm like, that is that is one of the things like I'm reading that I'm going, that's one of the things we tell you not to do. <laughs> well, and, and here's why, because I've been on the receiving end of this. You have a system that retries every minute or let's say it retries every yeah, every five minutes. Yeah. Right. For, you know, 100 iterations or something ridiculous because they're like, oh, you may have a long outage. So we're going to retry a lot, but we're going to keep it linear. Well, you're cramming more stuff into that queue. Right. And so if you expected the kind of load that would happen previously, but you've, your system has been down for four hours when it comes back online and it suddenly starts working, everything in that queue slams into your system and takes it back offline. Especially if you're already, if you're having load problems and you're kind of like limping along on one server while the other one, you know, gets the app pool recycled. Not that that ever happens anywhere that's using ASP.net. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Like, like that can legitimately happen. And it's like, okay, the system's coming back up and you just killed it. So you want to avoid doing that and having a incremental back off essentially. So the first time it fails, you wait a minute. Second time it fails, you wait two minutes and you just take the number of minutes and it's two raised to the number of failures for the skip distance yeah. until you hit some you know natural limit, whatever you want that to be, you know, 10 retries or whatever. And then that way it can kind of come back online and you've you've kind of evened out the number of things that hit the system at once. It's still going to be worse potentially, but it may not be much worse. If the result of a webhook call initiates an action on your system that changes data, that action needs to be idempotent. Remember what idempotent means? Uh, we just explained it. You cannot ensure that it will only be called once in any sort of scalable environment. Right. You know, or like, and you also can't ensure that the uh developers, you know, that their code didn't throw an error subsequent to returning something to you. And so like yeah. your payload came back and then their system blew up. And so it's like, oh, this failed. And so I'm gonna ask for it again here in a minute and resend that thing. Now they've mm -hmm. corrupted data on your side. Yeah. Um, and that's in addition to things like your message queuing software. Like if you're using uh, RabbitMQ, I think does this where you, you're guaranteed at least once delivery, but you're not guaranteed at most once delivery. And so mm -hmm. it may kind of double book those uh, message queue handlers. And, and so it could potentially fire it twice. And your client also needs to do uh, item potency for the same reason. Yeah. You should also, uh, along with this, you, you know, I talked about it a second ago, but you should have a refresh mechanism for entities. So if you have an outage or they have an outage, stuff gets out of sync, right? Like, you know, webhooks fail 15 times and you give up. Well, the client still probably wants that data. So you're going to have to give them a mechanism where they can request a refresh. So there has to be a manual way to do that through your system. Now, while it is possible to do this with a Git, it's a lot better to do it as a post that causes a hook to fire at some point in the future. What this does is it allows you to control the way your system scales uh, instead of having your client control that scalage. Right. So it's like, it's like the little kid that is looking down a, a garden hose and the older brother's got the hose pinched off until it's pointed at their face and then they let it go. You don't want to let somebody else control the rate of flow into your application because it will hit you in the face. All right. Right. Like, like that's a legit thing. Like never, never give the client the ability to overload your system because they will always do it. Now, your least stable clients will be the heaviest users of this part of the system. So the architecture needs to have a bias towards keeping them from inserting instability into your things. Yeah. And I used a completely different analogy in the previous point. I just noticed that. <laughs> oh, well, there's a lot of analogies for this sort of thing because it happens a lot. That's why we're giving this piece of advice. So the next thing 
you need is versioning and a deprecation policy. Always plan what is in a version and keep the interfaces stable. The typical agile process may have to be abandoned kind of at the edges, which is quite normal, but you can't subject a client's production environment to a webhook that's constantly changing. Well, you can, you just won't have the client anymore. So it really that's true. You know, solves itself. Honestly, the the further you go in the process, like from the your least stable environment should be development. Yeah. And your most stable should be production. You like as you go along, it should be more and more stability. Cause you know, your QA, they can handle a little bit of instability with this, you know, and with things changing a lot because, you know, they're they're kind of if you're in an agile environment, they're part of the dev team. You get to UAT, you don't really want that much. You got you like your super users, you people who like, all right, understand what's going on. But when you get to production, no, like, right, your average Joe user cannot handle that much change. Well, and production UI, I would argue, is a step below uh, production API. Yeah. Oh, I agree. Other yeah. developers, you want to see somebody just fly off the handle about a tiny change. A developer at another company that doesn't work with you, uh, uh-uh. uh. <laughs> that's mm-hmm. uh that that's not a place you want to be. So you definitely want to get this in order and you know the structure can can stay static and whatever's behind it can be dynamic, but you you really don't want to move that around much. Can I can I tell you a little secret on how to uh how to deal with people like that? When they call if you for some somehow I just get, give them your um, number. What do you mean? Oh, thanks. Yeah, you would. <laughs> if somehow they uh they get a hold of you as a developer and they go off just like grab a pin, say, hey, what, what's, what's your name, your company, stuff like that. Like, this is really good because I was against this from the beginning and I told management not <laughs> to do it. This is going to give me some good fuel for the next meeting we have where I can say, see, we, we really, we messed up. We don't need to do things like this. Right. And you throw the paper away after the call. <laughs> well, I wasn't going to say that. I mean, you, you can, if you were actually against it, opposed to it, you could take it. I mean... That's what happened to us when we um we did that uh that petition in college. Yeah, there took is it, that. Took it to the president of the university. He's like, I was opposed to this from the get-go, and now I have something to take to the board, and they never did it again. Yeah, I do remember that. Yeah, but the thing about like changing structure is it's easy to do and not realize you did it. So this includes stuff that you didn't consider. So new error conditions, uh, adding properties to a payload. Uh, changing the format of properties, you know, those kind of things. Even really, really small changes can break somebody else's production. So I ran into this with Mandrel, and that's the uh, transactional email client that goes with MailChimp, which I think it's actually been rolled into MailChimp because Mandrel is like another type of ape, but it's smaller. You would know that. Yeah. But basically, here's here's what happened. They had a payload that would come back and it had... It had some data in there, I think, as far as like error conditions that was in a big, you know, like in a text field on a JSON payload. And at some point they decided, hey, you know what would be cool? You know, since this is HTML in the JSON or it should be or it's, it's text in the JSON initially, we should make it HTML so that it displays nicely. Right. And we'll send it as a post. Well, guess what happens on most web environments when you start trying to post HTML, CSS, JavaScript? into a form field. It says, hey, somebody's trying to put something in here that may be displayed to other people, right? Like there's a security risk. And so it won't let you put that in the form data unless you override it. They broke our production system with this change that was completely unannounced. You know, somebody just did it um, as far as we could tell. And we had to roll stuff out to like eight or 10 clients in like the space of a couple hours, two in the afternoon uh, because they did this. And, you know, it's not, the thing is, it's a string. Like, they shouldn't have to care, but the thing is, is it, they did have to care because it wasn't really yeah. the same thing. So be very, very careful about that. That makes sense. This also means that your client should be able to use different versions in different environments. They have to be able to test, basically. Like, you, you need to have, like, different... Like, when they... And we talked about this um earlier with uh with some of the other stuff but like 
if they come out with a new version, they need to be able to test that new version in development and in test before it goes out to production. Yeah, and they need to be able to do that for a while, right? Um, your release schedule is your problem. You don't get to inflict that on the rest of the world. And you have to be careful as a company about how frequently you break your client's systems by rushing updates out for things like API endpoints because what's eventually going to happen is the developers are going to be like, okay, if we move to this other provider uh, that's priced in a similar fashion, they're not going to be breaking our system at random and pulling our devs off task because the developers are probably working on business critical things and you're you're disrupting that. So it, it's you really want to um, uh, allow a long testing period and and allow thorough testing before you roll something out. Absolutely. You also have to be like really sane uh, as far as the deprecation policy. So you're going to have a long tail before you actually completely remove an old version. You may be like suggesting, hey, you know, go ahead and update. You know, this is really important to do that. You may want to even nag them a little bit, but like trying to make them do major changes within a six month time frame may not be realistic. Uh, especially if you have enterprise clients. Really what you need to do is assume that all of your clients are banks handling accounting for radioactive waste or something like that. They aren't going to change anything without years of meetings. Yeah. And and I mean, that's something else to be aware of too, is like every time you make a big change on an interface, you're creating meetings for somebody who probably doesn't want them. That's very true. Yeah. Just remember how much you love those kinds of meetings and try to avoid that for other people too, you know? So speaking the, of meetings, uh, yeah, speaking of meetings, the, the next thing we're going to talk about is um, some complex processes. So first off, you need correlation identifiers. Uh, in other words, if there's a multi-step process, the client needs to be able to trace the same request all the way through that process. Yeah, and it's it's often better if the client can set the correlation identifier themselves rather than allowing you to set it within some you know constraints. Uh, and the reason for this is when a call comes back in with that correlation identifier on it, that's how the client looks it up. And they probably are going to want that to be part of a database key or at least an index somewhere. And if you're setting what that thing is, it may be something that really isn't optimal for their system. That makes sense. Now, these correlation identifiers should also be exposed in any logs and analytical outputs that may require them. The client will likely need them to track down particular use cases that are causing them problems. Right. Uh, It doesn't just need to be, hey, this thing failed at 2.35 in the morning. And, you know, fail for your client, you know, of this number. It's like, no, give me the correlation identifier so I can actually see the individual records, not just some time window in which something bad happened. Right. Like you you don't want it to be like trying to figure out why the dinosaurs died. You know, it doesn't need to be this thing of, well, 65 million years ago, plus or minus 3 million years, something bad happened. That's that's not comforting in a production down scenario. Now, it goes without saying that if it is going into the logs and transiting the wire a lot, your correlation identifier should not be any type of PII or PCI data, nothing that violates HIPAA, anything like that. Honestly, even if it isn't going into the logs or across the wire, it should not be this. Yeah, and honestly, it's probably not a bad idea to put some things in place that go, hey, this looks like a credit card number. Don't do this. You know, yeah. like the whole Batman slap uh, meme, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know what you mean. Because clients will do stupid things and they will expose your system potentially to scenarios where if your system gets hacked, there's a breach of very sensitive data and you had nothing to do with it because somebody else put it in your system. Mm-hmm. Um, I've, I've seen scenarios where, you know, clients could create a custom form for instance, um, and I've seen this multiple places, and they were supposed to have a little payment module that did all the secure stuff and kept credit cards safe and didn't post to the main site. It posted out, you know, out in an iframe, and 
you know, didn't put it on their system. But the clients made their own form that had all the payment fields on it and it posted to the main system. And so credit card numbers and other PCI data were slipping in places that they shouldn't be. Yeah, so you'll learn that you you basically put things in there to try to catch social security numbers, credit card numbers, potentially email addresses, those kind of things that can cause you problems. That makes sense. And speaking of causing problems. Yeah, the last thing we're going to talk about. Error handling. Oh, yeah. Your webhook code should be forgiving of errors sent by the client. Now, while you should specify what potential errors the client may admit that says, hey, your system has got a problem, your code has to be tolerant of whatever comes out from the client because Lord only knows what will. Yeah. So assume that people don't read the documentation or that your docs will become inaccurate because they will. And these things typically happen at the same time. Your documentation is not accurate and that's why people don't read it because the documentation is typically inaccurate. So they just know that and don't read it and go about the day. And your developers know that the people don't read it so they don't update the docs. Yeah. Yeah. So like don't rely on your docs to fix this. Yeah. It's catch 22. You should also be aware of the impact of soft errors on your system. So if you call a client, anytime you interact with somebody else's system, that call might be really slow. Um, So you're, you're telling them, okay, you know, yeah, we, we assume you've got a beefy, you know, system to handle this kind of load. And they go and they buy, you know, they pay for like a $5 a month, you know, DigitalOcean droplet, and they're running all the database servers on it too. Like people will do stuff that you would, you would never do on a, you know, on a personal home lab budget and they'll <laughs> do it at corporate because some accountant decided this was a good idea. And if, you know, if you're re- if you're queuing requests to this client and they go slow, you have to make sure that your things are structured in such a way that their slow responses do not uh, impact SLAs for your other clients. Because the kind of people that do this are the clients that like you make 50 bucks a month off of or 100 bucks a month and they'll ruin things for the clients that you make $30,000 a month off of and they won't understand why it's a problem. You also need to... uh pay attention to what happens when your system is slow. If a message is a day late, there's a big difference between something that requires quick turnaround and something that requires immediate turnaround. Uh, You need to know which is which. This may vary between webhooks in the same system even. So a a good example of this is probably like a, a payment system. If a payment goes through, yeah, you need to know fairly quickly because you, you, know, you probably have to do shipments and those kind of things. But if a payment is detected as fraud, you need to know that immediately before you ship stuff, right? So there's slightly different constraints and you'll see bigger ones on there. So if you're doing medical software and you've got some, I don't know, you've got AI that scans for cancer, right? Yeah. you That's probably on a different time window than a system that says, okay, well, you know, you're about due for your next checkup to find that cancer. <laughs> yeah. if, that, if that makes sense. Um, and, and so be aware that this isn't, you know, it is, is not a systemic thing. It's a per webhook thing. You have separate SLAs. It may be not to tell the clients that, but it should be separate in your mind. So guys, at some point in your career, you are likely to find yourself building or maintaining a webhook. If not, you will definitely be consuming them. Understanding the basics as well as some of the best practices around them will help you to navigate what could otherwise be a confusing world of HTTP requests and callback logic. Use the information that we've talked about here to better understand how to build and work with webhooks. It's not comprehensive, but more of a starting place for you to better understand and show you where to look in order to dive deeper. Now, if you do find yourself consuming webhooks, check out the Aftercast, where we talk about best practices for using webhooks, along with documenting them so you can understand what's going on in the mind of those who are creating them. That pretty much wraps us up before we close everything out. Will, what do you have for us this week for Tricks of the Trade? Well, I just want to caution people to 
understand that you don't know what goes on in somebody else's house, right? Like we all understand that, right? Like if the neighbors are arguing, you may have an idea what started it. You may have an idea about why it's so loud, but you don't necessarily have a hundred percent proof. And so you shouldn't make decisions based on that, right? Reasonable adults understand this. However, when we drive into the office and we work with somebody else's company, and for instance, we uh, expose a webhook that they're going to be getting calls from, we assume we do know what's going on there. And there's, there's a lot of risk in doing that. Um, your shop may be a you know really nice agile shop. You know you may be able to turn stuff around in six months. You may be able to you know, completely rearchitect your system. You may know the latest and greatest things like uh, GraphQL, you know those kind of kind of things. But your client maybe not so much, right? They may be a mom and pop uh, software dev shop that built something on an access database in the '90s, and they up they updated to you know VB.net in you know, 2010, and they're just barely inching along. And you have to realize that you shouldn't be necessarily critical of the way that they do things, or you shouldn't look at it and go, well, they should just fix this because they probably can't. Uh, And webhooks and interacting with third-party systems will teach you this very, very quickly. People do stuff that you're like, why in the world would you do that? And I guess I, I guess the thing I'm I'm trying to point out here is there there's a lot of developers that that do stuff like listen to podcasts and we spend a lot of time honing our craft and then there's a huge mass of developers out there that don't. Well, the same thing exists with companies. Okay, the like for instance, the company I work at right now, fantastic development process, right? Like it is the best organized thing you know that I've I've ever worked with. Some of the other companies I have worked for in the past were pretty atrocious. And if these two companies had to interact with each other, it is going to require understanding on the part of the ones that are more evolved for how the ones that are less evolved are going to do things. And so that's why some of the design guidelines are like this in the webhook discussion is because otherwise you find this out the hard way. So remember, you don't know what's going on under somebody else's roof. That's pretty much all I've got. If you have a question or comment, please email us at neckbeards at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Our theme music is an excerpt from Standby for Titanfall by Pure Bells, available on SoundCloud and licensed through Creative Commons. For references, show notes, and extra tips and insights, be sure to check out the website at completedeveloperpodcast.com. Help us make the show possible by supporting us on Patreon at patreon.com slash podcast. You'll get extras, including a weekly aftercast where we discuss the topic of the week and bonus material with some of our patrons. You can also follow us on Twitter at CompleteDevPod, like our page on Facebook, and follow us on Instagram to keep up with news about the show. Join the conversation anytime via Slack by signing up at slack.completedevelopernetwork.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.